infantry, all Marines, with the highest level of respect, for we have earned our place as Marines, and we'll accept nothing less than that from you! This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it, as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. What is going on, all my crayon eaters out there? Welcome to the Jarhead Podcast, Season 2. we got a, a really cool guest tonight. If you guys uh, are probably familiar with him, he's got a, a pretty big following out there on YouTube and on Instagram and all that. It's Fuelcraft uh, Survival, and he's also got his own podcasts and different projects with training and everything. But uh, got Mike Glover. What's going on, Mike? How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I know you've been busy, and just like you said, you just got back from another training session, so thanks for uh, being able to kind of spend some time. We know we've got a lot of people out there that are going to be wanting to talk to you a little bit. Uh, appreciate you joining us. Always, man. It's my pleasure, especially anything covering the Second Amendment and uh, preparedness as a whole. I'm, I'm all in, man. Before we do, let's talk real quick about uh, the podcast. This season, we want to send a shout-out. This season is brought to you by our good friends over at Hyperion Munitions. Uh, Hyperion is a veteran-owned and operated manufacturer that, that are based in Florida. They, they have a large, wide range of pistol and rifle caliber ammos, but they also distribute a large amount of firearms and accessories from other companies. Um, they have veteran ammo, uh, CEO firearms, Garrisar, Pelican cases, uh, Ariskany Arms and Operator Coffee. They've got a lot of great stuff, but thank you to Hyperion Munitions for uh, sponsoring this season. Uh, go check them out over at HyperionMunitions.com. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody out here is probably familiar with Mike uh, in, in backstories, former Green Beret, Sergeant Major, if I'm not mistaken, did, you know, um, did some government contracting work and is now in the the, 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 the land of survival and training and all of that. Uh, Mike, if you want to kind of go through your background for a few minutes before we kind of kick this off, we'd love to maybe give some people your background and all that. Yeah, no problem. I, I spent four years in the infantry and then uh, pre, pre 9-11, pre-global war on terror, um, leading up to September 11th, decided I want to become a Green Beret and spent the rest of my time as a Green Beret in special operations all the way up until about 2016. Um, spent a few years contracting with the CIA as a, a contractor, uh, deploying overseas and did almost everything you could do in special operations, was a sniper, was a, a JTAC, was a team leader, a team sergeant, um, a whole bunch of stuff, a sergeant major at the end of my career, um, for special operations detachment Africa. And so decided one day I wanted to start a, a company focused on survival as a genre. So started my company, Phil Craft Survival. Yeah, and um, you know, I I love all the stuff. I really kind of learned about you through a podcast, and I was like, oh man, this guy is right on. And then I start watching some of the videos, and by no means am I a survivalist at all. I went through Seer, but that was twenty five years ago, and probably forgot all of it by now. Um, but for the for those out there, and we're going to kind of jump into real quick is the survival the survivalist side of things, especially with the way things are going on right now stocking up and learning how to survive 
on your own is, is kind of maybe very, very important. So for those that are kind of new to survival, you know, what are some of the essentials that someone's like, Hey, I want to get a go bag or I want to maybe stock up the house on certain items. What are the essentials that you think that everyone should have in, at their disposal? Yeah. If, if you think about survival uh, as a genre, it's massive, right? There's so many important categories underneath the umbrella of survival. When I think about survival in its context, I think about my experiences in special operations and the things that made me more prepared to survive kind of worst case scenarios, you know, a, a raid against Al Qaeda. And the fact that we came back routinely from those missions successful um, lent itself to a whole bunch of ideology and concepts and processes that we teach at Philcraft. First and foremost, it's equipment, right? Equipment is the facilitator of survival. So you have to have the right equipment. You have to have the right mindset because mindset plays into the willingness and resilience uh, to survive. And yeah, you also have to have the training. You have to be able to train on the tactics, techniques and procedures and equipment to make yourself better off. Like if you, at a start point, I, I make people understand that they can look at themselves. You know, you, you are your own first response, so you are responsible for your own preparedness. And that starts with the right mindset and the right equipment. Everyday carry, if you're a, a citizen of the United States, as long as your state allows it, and maybe even if it doesn't, you should be carrying concealed or carrying uh, some type of firearm to defend your life. Because the, the last thing you want to happen is a circumstance where you wish you had your gun, you might not be able to come back from that. So having an everyday carry pistol, uh, I prefer a Glock 19 if somebody was going to ask me off the streets inside the waistband or some kind of concealment. I, I use a Patagonia fly fishing bag for a lot of my stuff because I like the capacity of it uh, and a tourniquet, you know, more often, more likely. And it's just statistically a probability you're going to run into an accident before you run into a gunfight. So having the ability to treat your own trauma or treat somebody else's trauma in your family or friends or, or stranger is important. So a tourniquet and a pistol or a start point um, and then being trained on those individual pieces of equipment. I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole if you want. But oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Veteran Ammo is the ammunition brand produced by veteran-owned and operated Hyperion Munitions focused on the best quality training, defense ammunition, and hunting products. They leverage their military backgrounds to ensure the ammunition works every time. They offer products in centerfire handgun, rifle, and shot shell categories and are always adding product offerings. Go visit the Hyperion Munitions website and click on the Veteran Ammo tab. Yeah, interesting. I have discussions all the time about tourniquets and um, you know, I, I carry a rat tourniquet. Um, just a simple, you know, a simple, small, rapid deploy tourniquet that can get the stuff done. And a lot of people I talk to, and I do a lot of training as well still to this day, but, you know, people say, well, if you carry a tourniquet on your person, is that for you, for someone else? And, and I feel kind of selfish sometimes saying, ideally, it's for me. I want someone to has to come up and it's got there. Now, if someone else needs it, obviously, it's there for whoever needs it. But ideally, it's if someone comes up and I have an injury, I have it right there that they can stop the bleed on myself. But do you carry multiple tourniquets or do you just carry kind of one on a day-to-day -day basis to where it can be for anybody? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, that's really, um, that's realistic, right? I mean, we were we learned in the military that it's your first aid is your self-aid, right? Because right. you have been on your own uh, individual training 
and being responsible for your own protection as well as your own aid. And then it was buddy aid, right? Your buddy. And then it was corpsman aid or, or medical aid from somebody who's a professional. At this right. point in the world in which we live, it's very easy to get that training that we weren't privy to 20, 10 years ago. Um, you know, 20, 10 years ago, we we're using cravats and sticks as tourniquets, but now we have rapid application, CAT7, soft T. And so it's very easy to learn how to use a tourniquet in a small period of time. And I would say, you know, the way I look at it is based off, off capacity. If, if I was to wear a, a jeans and a flannel shirt, which I'm wearing right now, and carry a tourniquet, it would be uncomfortable. Uh, I, I'm not going to stuff a tourniquet in my pants, especially a Cat 7 um, that's relatively large because it, I just wouldn't do it because it's not convenient. Now, if I take my Patagonia fly fishing bag or a Merce, a purse, a European man satchel, you have more capacity, so you can stuff more capability. And so when I'm traveling with my family, for example, I have multiple redundant systems. I have a, a tourniquet in my visor panel, which we make at Philcraft Survival, one of my mobility panel on the back of my seat, which we make at Philcraft Survival, and then I have an aid bag in the back. I like that redundancy because, again, if I'm going to get injured, I'm more likely to have more than one extremity injured. It's not going to be just one. It's going to be multiple. And so I want to treat myself in that trauma but I have the redundancy to be able to treat, treat multiple people. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's based off of what you can carry. And if you can carry more, why not carry more? Especially if you're, you know, we look at vehicles as the extension of a rucksack. If you have mm -hmm. a Honda Civic, it doesn't have to be a off-road four wheel drive vehicle. You have a trunk space. So put that equipment where it's needed. Um, so it, you know, when you need it, it's there. Patagonia flat fishing bag. Is that the one that you're talking about? Is it over on your website? No. So we don't, this is, this is crazy. Cause I've been, I used that in GRS when I was a CIA contractor, I used a Patagonia fly fishing bag and they make multiple versions. The one I recommend is the eight liter, uh, stealth Adam, which is a T O M fly fishing bag. And they have very variations of that bag that are a little bit more simple to all the way to complex. The, the cool thing about these bags, in fact, let me grab it real quick. The cool thing about these bags is it's a fly fishing bag, but when you wear it, you're not giving away anything because you're wearing it slung. But when you put it in front of you, because it's made for fly fishing, you have ready access, like a chest rig, to everything you need. Uh, when I was in GRS, I had the Stealth Atom version, which this isn't the Stealth Atom version. It's the Stealth, or this is the Atom version. Um, which is a little bit smaller, but you could, I fit seven full M4 bags, four Glock mags, my GPS, uh, my blood shits for, you know, CHIT for, for survival and evasion and a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff in this one bag. Everybody's like, what the fuck did he, what did he just say? So, so that's basically like your old, we used to call H on the old harnesses that we carried all of our mags. And all. It's basically the civilian version of a med kit slash harness slash whatever you need it to be. Yeah, this is the civilian chest rig. And what I is it reduces your signature in public because you're not the guy who's wearing a three-day assault pack made of molly that's multicam that looks like you're about to go to Afghanistan. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, rolling with this in everyday life, in my lifestyle, which is outdoorsy, um, mm -hmm. it's not going to throw anybody off. And, and, and I have all the capability I need. Now, I will tell you that uh, Philcraft Survival, because this is a fly fishing bag, we are making our own bag just for everyday carry, med, trauma, uh, EDC, the list goes on.
You were talking earlier, before I move on, I want to say, Clover, Clover, do you have anything you want to bring up or out there in the chat real quick but before we move on? Yeah, I'm curious, uh, you know, going back into the background a little bit, prior to your time in the service, um, at that point, when you, when you were younger, a kid, whatever, were you spending a lot of times in the outdoors and doing outdoorsy things that sort of kind of led you into the whole survival prepping thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, my lifestyle, my, my father was in the military. Um, he was a, a field artillery man and a military police officer. And I grew up kind of in that circumstance. I was born at Fort Ord, California. I was raised a little bit in Germany. Uh, and then he went to uh, work in the Department of Corrections. And I was always outdoors, you know, a, a, an avid fisherman. Uh, I probably fished four to five times a week with my dad. I mean, the dude was OCD about it. I mean, we went out, pier, freshwater, uh, anything we could throw uh, a, a pole and we were, we were fishing. And so I grew up in that environment and then joined the military very young at 17. Um, so it's, it's kind of all I knew um, in, in the survival realm. But like many people, you know, I, I've been to SEER school. I've been to like six SEER schools with the Army, um, yeah. a couple SEER schools with uh, the CIA. And I will tell you that even going to the training, I don't think training makes you an expert. I, I don't think it makes you the subject matter expert. It makes you more aware, but I think you have to live the lifestyle to be able, which I wasn't, I wasn't an expert in survival, but now that I live it as part of my purpose in my company with all the men that's, uh, that work for me, we live that lifestyle. And I think you need a true SME that lives it in order to be the person who's going to teach it. No doubt. Uh, I went through SEER in the spring of 95 over in Japan, and we kind of focused more on the survival and the evading, not necessarily the resist and escape, but more the survival. And, and I don't know if that's what you guys did, but, you know, uh, we had a detachment of rangers go through it with us and some French idiots. But uh, anyways, when you're talking about the military SEER, just briefly, this is interesting, but when you went through military SEER versus CIA SEER, is it different? I mean, are they, are they teaching different tactics or different things or is it relatively similar? Yeah, it's, that's a very good question. So the, the military side of SEER, which I went through SEER C, which is high risk SEER, which is for aviators and, and special operations guys, right. that SEER is based on a Colonel Nick Rowe's experiences in Vietnam. You know, Colonel Nick Rowe was one of 17 people in the entire Vietnam War to escape uh, as a prisoner of war, meaning a lot of people died in POW camps in Vietnam. It wasn't, you know, they didn't have, they had a higher rate of return in World War II uh, because of the Geneva Convention and following guidelines than they did uh, in Vietnam, where the Viet Cong didn't care as guerrilla fighters are conditioned. Yep. And so it was based on the idea that you're going to be in a wartime environment, you had to evade, and then you had to resist and escape, meaning you had to come back with dignity. The difference between that and the CIA side of SEER is the CIA, which is a government agency, focuses on austere environments and being in semi-permissive countries uh, that go uh, awry or go stray. So you, I'm in Yemen and I'm you know working in Yemen as a case officer, as a State Department official, as a government contractor, and things go wrong. Well, in that semi-permissive environment where things go uh, uh, pretty much a non-permissive, I have to be be prepared to flex. So I might be looking at infrastructure as opposed to hitting the wood line. 
I might be looking at acquiring vehicles. I might be looking at commandeering or maybe even building a network of people that can get me out of that circumstance. So it's a lot different. We, we call one version of it peacetime detention, which, which covers detention in foreign countries, but also all the things that I just covered uh, of being in a semi-permissive environment, as opposed to the non-permissive wartime environment. Do they teach different skills for different parts of the world specifically, or is that trained generic to cover all climates? Um, I can tell you that the, the SEER training that I went through was um, a more cold weather, mountainous forest because it was in Japan. I'm assuming I, you know, that it's going to be different. You know, the skills are the same from my experience. Um, I took what I learned. I actually went to SEER after I was in Somalia. So I didn't have that training before I went to Somalia. So I didn't, I can't, you know, tell you what it was for desert training or African uh, seer would be, but you can probably go through that as, you know, when it, when it comes to desert warfare versus urban warfare versus jungle warfare, you probably had it all. Is it relatively similar as far as the skill sets? It is. It's relatively similar. You know, there's core competencies that we teach in special operations or the military where we focus on um, establishing a base of knowledge. And CRC is that, right? It's the base of knowledge. Now, I went through in wintertime, so it sucked because it was colder. Um, when I was getting, you know, hosed down in a cage naked, That that's a, a different uh, aspect, right? It's a different kind of uh, metric. But we do have schools like Jungle Warfare, right, that, that have to do with triple canopy, high humidity, uh, uh, you know, all the considerations that you would experience, including mosquitoes, survival, et cetera. And then we different have different things to eat in different yeah. climates, different, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The environmental factors are the biggest contingency factors that you focus on in survival in the first place. So they vary many. Like Ranger School, for example, is a great example of the diversity of a school that's not necessarily survival. I mean, I went to Ranger School when I was 18 years old, and I didn't know what I was getting into. But being three phases in three different different geographical locations, you get some of the mountains, so it's going to be colder. There's different considerations. I was in the swamps of Florida and the same thing. So it varies. Now, survival as a core competency is just one school, but we do have multiple types of schools to go to. Absolutely. Um, how about a handheld CB or ham? And I know that you you were on or you had our, our good friend, Josh. We know him as Hosh Nasi. Um, Hosh was on, or you, I don't know, he came out to you or you went out to him, but you know, Hosh is huge into the ham uh, radio and all that stuff. So uh, when it comes to the CBs or ham, how important is that for um, for survival right now? Yeah, I do recommend that, you know, ham radio crash course, which is his YouTube and all of his content, that you do reference the SME, the subject matter expert. I'm not a subject matter expert on comms, but I, I leverage guys like that to make myself an expert, but also make other people tuned in to what, experts are uh, recommending. Uh, Josh recommends that you get a, a handheld version of it. Uh, Bofang, um, uh, uh, Dasu, there's a couple uh, competitors that make similar competent uh, ham radios, but what you have to understand is ham radio is based on a frequency set where you do have to get ham radio certified to be able to be uh, talking or communicating on a ham radio, but ham radios are good for uh, listening as well. In fact, in the survival context, I think that's the most important aspect. When you want to get situational awareness in a place where the infrastructure doesn't exist, 
well, because ham radios run on batteries and because relay stations run on solar, you're still going to hear the traffic in either a natural or man-made disaster from FEMA, from experts, maybe even from ham radio operators who are communicating to still retain situational awareness. And I think you should have that, which is a direct line to tap into that. Um, but also you should have direct line of communications, line of sight communications via VHF and UHS, which is, you know, the CB that you pick up at Bass Pro that allows you to t talk intercoms because those intercommunications uh, are, are just as important. Yeah, uh, I, I think when people think of ham radios, they think of that shit hits the fan or that red dawn scenario. What they don't realize is if there's a natural disaster, tornadoes, hurricanes, some of these cell towers could be down. There might be the only way to communicate from the outside world, get help here, or, hey, I hear this help coming. I mean, there's there's all sorts of stuff that those radios, handheld radios, can play a dramatic role in natural disasters, not just that red dawn scenario as well. Earlier, you touched on concealed carry, and that's one of the big missions that I have. I, I, I'm a huge uh, concealed carry uh, proponent. I want to get people out there trained and carried as much as they can. And we've had this discussion on many other podcasts that I've done and then people on this podcast. But what I love also is you have the podcast, the Mindset Podcast, and, and the mindset of being that everyday warrior and taking that mental decision and saying, I'm going to carry. Because it's not just going down to the gun shop and buying a gun and say, I'm going to carry, I'm part of the solution now. I, there are people that I probably don't want to carry uh, because they don't have that mental mindset of saying, yeah, anyone can carry a gun, but it, what if you're actually put in that situation and you've got to take that shot? Are you mentally able and prepared to take that shot? So when you're training, especially maybe newer gun owners or newer carry people, can you pick the ones out relatively quickly that you say they may not be mentally ready for this or how does that process go? Yeah, look. When I look at one one mindset is one of the most popular hashtags on social media. But if you ask anybody what mindset means, nobody can articulate tangibly what it means to have a more refined or better mindset. Like, what's the process to get to a bad mindset, and what does that look like, and what? It, how do I get to a better mindset? Well, when I look at mindset and survival, it's resilience. It's your ability to cope, um, pick yourself up, and fight through adversity, etc. But when I look at everyday carry considerations we teach that mindset through processes like the the best question i could ask at a course is i asked somebody recently we, we ran an edc everyday carry course this weekend and i said listen what is your criteria in your head for you to literally pull your gun out and fight for your life and then i gave him a scenario i said you're pumping gas at a gas station and a guy comes up to you and he shows you the back frame or handle of his firearm and he sees and you see it but he's he's not combative he's just saying hey man I, I don't want to do this but if you keep coming at me maybe I'll use this and then the guy that I questioned said you know I would I would probably draw my pistol I said okay well what would you do he said well I probably wouldn't shoot him because I would give him a chance and so I said you root you do realize one there's there's the there's a there's a tack not a tactic it's actually a natural primitive thing we do naturally called a behavioral script where we script out all the things we do in life based on the models around us so when you tie your shoes you don't think about tying your shoes because it's scripted it's something that you've it's you know some people refer to muscle memory you have that script so if you build a script in which you're accelerating or becoming more efficient through movement um and you go to draw your pistol and then you stop that script 
cognitively stop that script under stress and say, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shoot this guy because he's not an immediate threat. Maybe he's an imminence of threat or he's he's about to be, but I'm going to give him an opportunity. You're interrupting the script that leads to you putting down a bad guy. So one thing I articulate is you're not a police officer. You don't have the luxury nor the legal stance to draw guns on people to give them opportunities to mitigate risk. Two, if you if you drew a pistol on somebody without the intention of using deadly force because your deadly force criteria hasn't been met, then what you just did is presented a deadly force to that person. So That's let's right. say we're in Arizona. Well, in Arizona, it's an open carry state. He could have the handle gun of that gun showing anytime he wanted. He could have it on the outside of his waistband. But you pull the gun. Now he, he pulls his gun and he shoots and harms you. Let's say miraculously you survived. You might be going to prison for attempted murder because he's defending his life. And now his perception is you just drew a gun and held it on me. And I'm protecting mine by using deadly force. So what I tell people is you have to know what the criteria is for you to defend your life and the, and the lives around you. And once that criteria is met, you don't pull guns to show or mitigate risk. You pull guns to defend life. And so I'm not pulling that gun unless I'm willing to go through my behavioral script and meet it to its end goal or objective, which is eliminating and destroying the threat. And so a lot of people haven't asked themselves that question. Just doing that mental modeling and that war gaming and just simply asking each other those questions is how we are going to develop the right mindset and be more responsible concealed carry owners. Absolutely. Um, it's an interesting question that could go down about 17,000 different rabbit holes, but it, I think it's a valid question. And this is something I wanted to touch, you know, maybe even touch right, right now, but with all the bullshit that's going on right now, should we be preparing for something bad in the U.S.? And, um, you know, if can I get your thoughts on what you think in the last four days, all the bullshit that's going on and, and what you think about where we are as a country? Uh, I would like to say that I think that there are issues out there, obviously. But what I'm most disappointed in, and I'll get your uh, opinion on this as well, is there doesn't seem to be any leadership in our country right now, either from anywhere, governments, from social groups, from anyone. There's no one leading right now. I think everyone's afraid to upset someone. And that's upsetting in itself because there's got to be someone that stands up and says, look, I understand this or that, but we need to do this and to do that. At least there's someone out there saying, but we don't seem to have one like that. Um, so I want to kind of get your opinion on what's going on with America right now and answer the question, do we need to be prepared for something bad happening in the next, you know, incoming future in the U.S.? Inherently, what is the problem? Well, it, it, it's not a black-white problem to me, right? When we, it's oh, easy yeah. a, a, a problem that we see and turn it into a race issue. One, one it, it makes it easy because we don't have to address the actual issue when we generalize. Like if I say all black lives matter and, and I'm generalizing because then I'm not saying specifically what I mean, right? So hashtags, clickbait, the propaganda, the headlines, that's how we operate uh, intellectually as a, as a country. And that inherently is the problem because maybe it's a policing and culture issue. Like I, I, I train law enforcement for a living. So right. it's not like I don't think that we could improve. But do I think systemically that racism is a problem in our nation? No. Inherently, as 
ancestrally, we are segregationist. Maybe that lends itself to racism in small circles. Maybe we do have racism in, in small spurts. That is the things that we have dealt with in our culture through our history. But the point at which we now, having had eight years of Barack Obama, where Joe Biden is saying that you know people are creating these cultures and we have a systemic race issues, well, you had eight years to figure it out. And what did you do with that eight years? Right. Well, maybe it's because you don't think that we have a systemic race issue and you just want to generalize everything so you can get the vote that you want on your team, right? That's, that's inherently one of the biggest issues, right? It's media propaganda machines uh, influencing younger generations because most of these people are young and getting them on their team. The problem is it takes a comprehensive discussion and great leadership in order to fix what we think is broken. Now, as a strategist, as somebody who planned some of the biggest counterterrorism operations in history in the global war on terror, I look at this and I go, man, what's the start point? Well, right. there would have to be a problem in order to meet an objective or instinct. The problem in this context is there is no problem because systemic racism does not exist in our country, right? There aren't white cops grossly negligently murdering black men. But if you watch the news and you listen to celebrities and people who, to be honest, don't matter in our society, then you would think that. But the people with the most influence are spitting the most propaganda. When we need the people with the most influence rationally discussing comprehensively the long form discussion. I, I, in fact, tomorrow, which, you know, I have a small segment of popularity, hopefully I'm going to influence the masses with strategic uh, ideology and lining out what we need to focus on as, as moving forward. Because if the end state is violence, if the end state is burning our country to the ground, well, then you're on the wrong side of history and you're going right. to lose, right? Kirasar is a Florida-based international military arms manufacturer and equipment supplier. They produce customized solutions for American and international law enforcement, governmental agents, and the military. Garrisar manufactures both forged and billet AR-15 lowers, dedicated 9mm lowers, and 308 upper and lower receivers. So go check out the Hyperion's Munitions website and click on the Garrisar Arms tab. To getting back to preparation, we should always be prepared for the worst case scenario. Maybe this in the context of scenarios could end up being the worst case, but I plan for the worst case the same. So no matter how you look at me or how we advocate for preparedness, it could be the Russians jumping in like Red Dawn. I'm going to be prepared. So that's firearms, that's ammunition, which, which entails security protocols. Right. That's med, that's food sustainment, that's pharmaceuticals, that's understanding long-term survival period. I'm going to be prepared for that. We advocate for that. Uh, we let people know that, yes, we should always be prepared. And then if this is maybe the three quarters of the way, worst case scenario, everything between best and worst will be prepared for. Look, I, I wouldn't encourage anybody ever to pick up a firearm and go out advocating for violence. But if violence comes to me in my law abiding life, you better believe I will meet it by shooting it in the face. You, you get, you not, you throw a brick through my, my window. That's a different subset. You throw right. it at my head or my family, I'm going to put a bullet in you. And that's not a right. threat. That is a promise because I have the inherent right to self-defense in this country. 
as a law-abiding citizen who owns a, a firearm and follows the laws, that is my inherent right. And so anybody who is listening to this who, who is law-abiding, you are justified to defend your life at all times under every circumstance. And so take that with uh, not a grain of salt. Take that with wholeheartedly and right. make that your lifestyle and your culture. Absolutely. Uh, Guns and Barbecue out there says, Ghost, did I really hear you say that people, you don't want people carry simply because they might freeze? Isn't that on them? No, I, I don't think so. I think it is on them because the reason why I don't want people who doesn't have that mental capacity to be that warrior, if you're going to carry, you're not just defending yourself. You're saying, I'm going to defend myself, my family, and any other innocent bystanders that I might be around that might be in imminent danger. And if you're not willing to take that shot, you're not willing to do that, then you're going to put yourself and those other people in more harm's way by not taking that shot than if you take that shot. And if people that aren't mentally prepared to do that, and I hear people saying, well, I shot a deer, I shot this. It ain't the same, man. I promise you. And if you're not ready to do that, then until you are ready, continue to train, continue to go get instruction, continue to go to the range, be more proficient with your firearm. But until you make that middle decision that I'm ready to take that shot and to protect, be that first line of defense, because guess what? The average cop is seven minutes away. This shit's over with in 30 seconds. 30 seconds. You've got to be willing to take that shot when the opportunity arises or everyone else gets hurt. I don't want you caring. And it's nothing bad against you. I'm just saying that if you're not ready, then you're not ready. And it's okay. So, I mean, that, that's answering the question. I don't, I, sorry for kind of going on a rant there, but I, I take that very seriously. I take concealed carry very seriously because you are the first one. You are the first responder, whether it's a medical. And I tell people, if you're not ready to take that shot, but you want to do something, then you know what? Go take a stop the bleed course. Go take a first aid CPR class. You can still be part of that solution to help someone, even though you might not be ready to take that shot. If someone is ready to take a shot, you not you might be that first paramedic or that first responder to save a life. There are a lot of things you can do besides carrying a gun to help that scenario. So, um, Clover, do you have anything else, real quick? Yeah, I mean, all that topic. I mean, I want to come at it from a different angle, and because you mentioned the you know what it is whether they're deer hunting or whatever and i mean there's no telling how many animals i've taken over my lifetime and with every one there there is a bit of a, a mental issue there and there is a bit of hesitation there even with animals even with nuisance animals and pests um it's just there i mean you're still taking a life whether you're taking that and you're going to put it in the freezer or you're taking that because it's messing with your livestock or your you know whatever the case is there is a, a levity to that and you know there's there's people out there that do not hunt and that's why because they can't handle the I fact that they're doing that but then they'll turn around to your point they'll turn around and they'll carry they'll get their license and they'll carry and it's like well you don't hunt because you can't take the life of a deer but you think that when the time comes you're going to be able to draw down and pull the trigger on another human being and exactly. so it's it's one of them things to where you know you're absolutely 100% right. I mean, it's a mental game and and that's just as much a part of your uh training and and practice and everything else as is the the physical acts out on a range. Yeah, I, I don't hunt because I have no desire to go sit in a stream at zero dark 30 anymore. I, I don't want to do that. I I 
that has no had no desire. I'll go to Duck Club or the Deer Camp and I'll hang out. But uh, getting up at O Dark Thirty anymore to go stand in some water to shoot a bird, is, it just doesn't excite me. I, I that's the only reason. But it is what it is. Um, JMA is a fellow Marine out there. Says as a black man to serve the country, I'm so tired of the black and white thing. It's not it's as a people thing, and we as people need to fix this problem. Kind of going on what you were saying, Mike is. You know, one of the things that I loved a few days ago is it actually got taken down off Instagram, but you had a live thing that you did on Instagram that was talking about the double standard in America. And I thought that was a wonderful uh, way of looking at things. You don't really think about outside the box and they think black, white, they think us versus them, but they don't understand the double standard that there is in America. Do you want to kind of go in and briefly talk about that? Because I know it was only up for a little bit because I guess Instagram took it down or something. Yeah, you know, I just, I hate the generalization of anything because I know what it leads to. You know, when you, you know, I look at, you know, I've been all over the world. I've been to Libya, Yemen, Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, Africa, like all over these problematic societies and cultures and ideology where you had people that have generalized everything. And when you generalize any problem set, you don't come up with real solutions. So if the overall objective is just to spin wheels because you have an outlet for emotional outcry, then yeah, that's that's one thing. But if you want to really address a, a problem, especially in society, you have to comprehensively look at specific things that you identify as problems. So when when I say when I say even Black Lives Matter, when people don't understand the context or even the origins of how Black Lives Matter started, then they don't have an understanding holistically of why it's a problem to me. I mean, Black Lives Matter started off of multiple specific shootings, which two out of the three actually came back that it was the fault of the person, the suspect at the time, who happened to be African-American. But my thing is the double standard is, you know, this last fiscal week in one city, in one neighborhood in Chicago, 17 black men were murdered. There was an 11-year-old child that was murdered, African-American child that was murdered by another drug dealer because he wanted to get back at the guy and the family right. that caused him the issues. There was an African-American male that was murdered, a federal police officer that was murdered in Oakland by a protester who turned violent, who murdered him. Shot him right in the head, thing, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He and then I just got a text from my buddy in Las Vegas. One of their police officers last night was shot in the head. The head. The head. And so yep. where does it, where do we draw the line when we generalize so much that it, it grossly affects not only our society, but the, the way the world perceives our society? I mean, there's Black Lives Matter protests in Nova Scotia today, in Germany today. And, and they think that systemically white cops and white people across the United States are burning black people to the ground when right. that's not the case. The chief of police in Minneapolis, Minnesota is black. Right. You know, and, and so they have a large number of African-American police officers. So when you generalize a race, and, and th this is the ultimate problem to me, what does white even mean? Look, I'm half Korean yeah. and, and I'm proud of my Asian culture, but I'm also, I'm also, white skinned so do i fall in the category my, of have Japanese. my wife's japanese she's the same way you yeah. know she doesn't know sometimes am i asian do i click white you know what, what i pick you know it's a large percentage of the white population that live in poverty so are they privileged because they grew up i grew up in a mobile home in florida 
in a trailer park. So my privilege, the only reason I was able to make a living in my life was because of the U.S. government and the military. And the Army gave me an opportunity. And so when I look at people and they, and they like to generalize everything, I, I, I read that as a sign of, uh, of unintelligence. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a lack of intelligence. It's not there. And I also look at it as the lack of understanding. Because if you would actually ask these people who are protesting, why are you protesting and what do you know about it? They don't even know the, they don't even know the root of why they're protesting. And so I, the worst thing I see, and you know, I'm speaking as a neutral person here who is not on the side of white or black. Like I grew up in a black town. Most of my friends, my best friends were black. I have fam family members that are black. So when I look at white people saying things like, it's our fault, it's the white guilt, we did this. You, no white person in America is responsible for your ancestors' flaws. Right. You know, Africans in Africa sell slaves today. I, I've been to Africa multiple times. I spent years in Africa. And I've seen Africans sell Africans to other people, including Arabs in Africa, including to Chinese in Africa as slaves. And yet we think that we're living in a slave-driven society of white people abusing and enslaving african-americans that's not the case if you really want to make a difference let's focus on the issues uh right. fake cultures and institutions that push propaganda uh miscued and misguided people uh who are using false pretenses on both sides on both sides on both yeah. sides african-americans are killing african-americans in their own inner cities every single day let's look at that because that's what I care about. Because I think every American life matters. And there you go. I have opportunities in that sense. I don't care what color of your skin is. In fact, when I saw that video, I didn't see a white cop killing a black person. I saw an institution with bad policies and a bad human being killing a person who was fighting for their life. And that's in right. any context, in any measure, in any society, that's wrong. So let's address that first and foremost. And it will just cover down on everything else. For new concealed carriers, carrying with one with without one in the chamber, do you believe it's okay at, at first until a person becomes more confident and then chambered or carry or don't carry unless you're chambering one? What do you think about Israeli carry? Yeah, I think it's a bad practice. I think it's a bad protocol. And I think anything, you have to understand that what happens to you under stress where you have this hypothalamus that activates, overdrives your sympathetic nervous system, which causes you to do things you typically wouldn't do to optimize your performance in survival, right? Flowing blood to the large muscles in your body to be able to fight, flight, uh, or potentially freeze. Those things are not beneficial to cognitive processes. So in a flinch response, uh, you have to have a tactic to implement. My flinch response is driving my behavioral script to my pistol and operating. Well, if you, if you enact a mechanism where you have to do something that is more detailed or cognitive, which requires more uh, cognitive consciousness, you are going to fail, right? Mm. So you need to realize that pistols that exist today, uh, number one, are the fastest operating pistols, are single-action-only pistols, like Glocks. Mm. When, you, when you have that pistol and you draw it, there are other ways to mitigate the anxiousness or lack of training. A holster protects 
Uh, a holster with retention protects the trigger mechanism by shrouding the trigger guard. The gun's not going to magically go off in your purse, in your hands, in your waistband. You have to pull the trigger in order for that to happen. So I recommend one you never consider Israeli carrying uh, unless there's unforeseen circumstances. I have been in those circumstances where I had to put a pistol without a shroud or without any means of protecting it in my waistband uh, through my jeans to be able to protect myself. But I wasn't going to stick that live gun in my waistband and risk uh, right. negatively discharging into my crotch. So I had to do that. That's right. an unforeseen and very rare circumstance. Outside of that, I would never consider it. I'll get the pro appropriate training and appropriate equipment uh, prior to ever considering that. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. I'm assuming that even though you very rarely, if ever, do it except for certain situations, you've probably practiced and trained to draw, rack the slide, and engage. And you've probably practiced that just in case you had to. That's another thing is if you're going to do it, I'm not going to say that you should carry one out of the chamber, but if you are, make sure when you're at the range, work on your draw, get that extra half second to rack. So that's part of your drills that you're doing so that you're just accustomed to do it. If you're going to do it, that's on you. Uh, but make sure you're proficient with that extra movement. Because if you ever practice racking that slide, once again, you're giving that extra half second to someone that, you know, is not good. So Guns and Barbecue wants to know, if I am I saying that if I don't carry one in the chamber, then don't carry it all. I'm saying I don't recommend it. But if you are, that's your choice, bro. That's your choice. If you're going to carry without one because you feel safe, then that's on you. All I'm saying is if you're going to do that, incorporate that into your practice, that draw, rack, present. That's got to be part of your training and your practice on every single day. You can sit there and just do that dry firing while you're watching Seinfeld at night. Draw, rack, present. Draw, rack, present. At least so you've got that extra movement that most of us don't have. You're going to have that extra movement. I'm not saying it don't. I'm saying I don't recommend it either. But if you are, make sure you're proficient with that draw. That's all I'm saying, bro. With years of expertise and experience, Ariskany Arms is proud to be regarded as a firearms manufacturing leader. Every decision is inspired by the main mission, which is to prove the highest standard of product and services to both retailers and customers. Ariskany Arms took their expertise and introduced a line of full-size American-made series 1911, chambered in 45 ACP, 10mm, and 9mm. So go check out the Hyperion Munitions website and click on the Ariskany Arms tab. Red Dot, LPVO for 300 yards in, what do you prefer? Or do you prefer hollow, or what would you prefer for 300 and in? So there, there's, uh, there's a few considerations here. When you're, when you're looking at uh, any firearm and extended ranges, you have to consider the ability to positively identify a target. And you have to consider what's what's called we refer to generally as holdovers or holdoffs. You know, you could do with most M4s, which have a maximum effective range of about 550 meters. Most weapon systems you could identify, um, or you could address a threat at 300 yards all day long without mint without gross changes in elevation. Right? If if you zero a a 14.5 inch barrel with 55 grain even um, at a one in seven or one in nine twist, that's going to give you a 25 meter slash 300 repeat zero with minimal 
holdovers in between. Where you see the gross holdover requirements is the bullet drop at 300 and beyond. You know, the bullet drop at, at 400 yards, for example, was around 60 inches. So if you think about a red dot and you engage a target with a red dot at 400 yards, one, you can't see and identify it. Two, you would have to hold over 60 inches, which is another person above that as a reference in space and time. You, you, you can't address that with a, uh, a mill reticle or staged line, which is important. Another consideration, obviously, is that the PID aspect. If I'm shooting something at 300, I want to see that. And I recommend that you have some variable magnification in that optic. It could be a one, you could probably get away at 300 yards with a one to three or a one to four. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're going to put a one to four, then why not put a one to six or one to eight? You know, I have multiple guns for multiple reasons. If I'm shooting out the 300 yards, more than likely it's because I'm hunting. So I want to be able to PID, but I also want to consider the shots beyond 300 yards because if I'm shooting at 300, I might as well be prepared to shoot at 500. So I'm using a minimum uh, variable optic of 21 power, which is common. Um, and then I have the stage reticle line, so it's w which I use mill radians. Um, and I also use a Kestrel, applied ballistics called Kestrel, to be able to uh, get my data or dope a right reference near me so I could be able to shoot that target that far. So the answer is uh, it, there's many variables, but I recommend variable magnification and a stage reticle at beyond 300 yards. Right. Um, now, this could go down 27 different rabbit holes again. Let's just say you're setting up a uh, truck gun, home defense, you know, a battle rifle for 300 yards and in or whatever. I use a 36-yard zero. Now, I used to use a 5200 for a long, long time. But a 36 I like because I can kind of get from 7 yards to 300 yards. I'm looking at a 6-inch or so. Uh, I like that, but would you recommend, or is there a, a zero recommendation for someone that wants to be able to go 300 yards and in, is it the 100 yard, is it the 25? I mean, what do you recommend, or is there a, a way to say this is the one? Remember, there's three distinguishable factors when determining what your zero is going to be in the first place. It's barrel length, barrel twist, and bullet weight. So when you optimize and understand those three relationships, it's going to determine what the, the best zero practice is going to be. Generally speaking, a 5200, a 25300, even a 36 is going to set you up for everything in between because the overall objective in all three of those zeros is to minimize my hold over or deviation um, based on what the bullet's doing between zero and 300. Meaning, if I need to shoot a guy at 25 yards, it's point of aim, point of impact. If I need to shoot him at uh, 200 yards, it's point A and point of impact. If I need to shoot him at 300 yards, it's point A and point of impact. So I'm covered in, uh, everywhere from zero to 300. Um, if, if we go down the rabbit hole of the different variations, there are ways to optimize and get a refined um, picture of what that's going to be. Realistically, unless you live in rural America, um, you, you're going to use a, a 5200 or 36. Um, which which I recommend as a baseline. I, in combat, I use 5200s. Um, I've often used, but because of the deficiencies of zeroing ranges, I use 25-300 because I can right. see what I'm shooting at at 25, get a real tight zero at 25, 
And then if I even wanted to skew that for a 5200, I'd aim about an inch and a half below that, which represents a 5200. Um, so, you know, there's there's multiple ways to look at it, but you can't go wrong with either of the three. Uh, Guitar Man, Pete out there says he's using a PCC for home defense now, and he doesn't expect to ever have to shoot over 30 yards for anything on that red dot. What range would you use? If you're talking about a 30 yard, would that probably be the 25 yard zero for a PCC? I mean, what would, you know, for someone who's not going to be looking outside of the home, I guess, or, you know. Yeah, one of the, yeah, one of the variables we often forget is you have to shoot something that you could see what the optic you're shooting at to get a good zero in the first place. So if you, like, for, for, for example, if you say you're going to do a 100-yard zero with a 5.56 gun, well, if you have an eight-point dot, most people don't understand this, but the red dot on most magnification or most uh, uh, eight-point optics are about a 3.5 MOA dot, which right. means that 100 yards, it represents 3.5 inches, which means there's variation in the, the dot in itself. So if you're shooting 3.5 inches at 100 yards, you could be shooting on the edge of 3.5 inches, which gives you a seven inch spread, right. which means your accuracy is all shot to shit. So you right. would dim down your aim point dot, you would shoot at 25 yards on an aim small, miss small, one inch pasty, and then, or, or I, that's why I recommend, uh, that's why I recommend reticles in the first place, because you can get a smaller sight picture to aim small, miss small. Most mil dot reticles are below 0.2 mils, which means they're smaller than a couple MOA or a couple inches. So you could take that quartered, you could take that pasty at 25 yards and quarter it. You could literally right. cut in half and put your five rounds right in the middle, which is going to give you the confidence that you're able to shoot. So 25 yards, that's why the army does it. That's why the military does it because most army military ranges are 25 yards. And most of the optics, which include the M68 endpoint or CCO, don't have that ability to reach out with magnification. So yes, that is definitely a good tactic in, in using a 25-yard zero for that practice or even for a 5200 or even for a 36-yard. Find out right. what your 25-yard hold-off is going to be to represent 36 yards, which I yeah. imagine 36 yards is just a little bit below, maybe an inch below that 25-yard. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a video, I don't know, a couple weeks ago about holes, and there's people may not understand, you know, oh, I've zeroed my weapon. Well, if you zero it at 25, 300, if it's not at 25 or at 300, it's not going to be, you know, point of aim is not point of impact. So if you're shooting at 25 yards zero, but you got that 21 foot home defense, that seven yard home defense, you better know that you're going to have to aim probably about three or four inches high because it's going to still be flat, you know, but people don't understand holds. And I'm glad that you talked about that as well, because that is something, especially to the newer firearm owners that are in their community now over the last few months, they go by their AR, they go by their, their aim point or trigicon, but they don't understand how to use it. So that's, that's a great point. You're talking about the holdovers and everything else. What about a pistol with a thumb safety like the SIG M18? Hearing one in the chamber with safety viable option for the beginner. I'll let you go ahead for go first. Um, yeah, I'm I'm look, I, I was in the military when we used Beretta M9s with a safety, uh, a leverage safety with also mm -hmm. a single action and double action pistol, and right. which was apparently flawed. I mean, the locking blocks on M9 Berettas are I, as an, a special forces weapons guy, even as an infantry guy that used a pistol, um, are, those pistols are inherently flawed because they're made for law enforcement. They're made for long trigger pulls, which means safety. And so I don't, all those mechanisms on pistols that, that we use 
come from the law enforcement side of limiting liability. So I'm not worried about a three process or a step draw stroke with a pistol because I'm dropping a hood, I'm locking, unlocking a system, and then I'm going through something. I'm worried about me pulling that pistol efficiently, uh, efficiently and effectively and taking that shot. Again, grip safeties, um, lever safeties, even on 1911s, we, we kept them down and we rubber banded or used a tubular a bungee around our grip safeties. Because under stress, remember all these technical skills that you practice on a range, one, they're never vetted unless you practice them under stress, which physical and physiological, which includes mental stress, is the way you get there. But you have to remember you're doing these, these, these things under stress. And you take a pistol and you go to grip it. I learned this hard lesson in IDPA and IPSC where I, was, I kept biffing the grip safety on my 1911. Yeah. And then was, damn, I, I don't feel confident in being able to use this. Well, the more things you have in the way of you pulling the trigger, the more uh, or the less confident that you'll be. So again, I, rem- I, I, I recommend a center strike uh, single action pistol that doesn't have any safety mechanisms. That's why I'm a big advocate for Glock because I use Glocks uh, in, in contracting. I use it in the military and I've never seen them fail. I was an 18 Bravo, a special forces weapons sergeant, who, a specialist who's worked on guns. I've never seen one of them fail. Yeah. I, I understand the hatred towards the M9. I have an affinity for the M9 because I had I was never around guns before I joined the Marine Corps. So aside from maybe pulling a 22 at a snake or something at my buddy's ranch in Texas growing up or whatever, but shooting the M16A2 and shooting the uh, the M9 were my first experience in and I remember loving those experiences. So to this very day, I have that affection for the M9 or the 92, whatever, just because it was like the first handgun. That, that's when I learned. I was like, oh, my God. People say, why do you like 9mm so much? I don't know why I like 9mm. That's what I know. That's what I used, and that's what I know how it's going to react. I, I know what the ballistics are. I know what's going to do with 115, 124, 147 grain. I know what that round is going to do. I know what those weapons are going to do, those weapon systems. So um, they were not the greatest, obviously, but uh, I will always have an affection for them just because uh, it was like the first handgun I ever I ever bought. We're going to get into that here in a few minutes. i got some little fun questions to ask here uh, in a few minutes. And kind of see here, uh, Clover, um, you got a question in there from Sean, it looks like. Uh, yeah, since we're on the pistol stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean White says, for pistol, do you... Okay, so I'm assuming he's thinking like a, an RMR or something, but um, do you do a 10-yard or 25-yard zero when using a red dot on a, hand, a pistol? Do you use a, Do you run a dot on a pistol ever? So I, I do run dots on pistols, but I'm waiting for there to be better, better options. You know, look, I, I will tell you, it's been proven. If you're a, somebody who's new to owning guns and you, and you want to get quick confidence on a pistol and your confidence and your abilities to potentially defend your life, right? Because, you know, one, working with firearms is always a learning process. I learn every time I teach, every time I shoot. And that has, I've been doing this for decades. And so even as an expert, I think in instruction, I am always constantly learning and improving the end product. So when you take a red dot and you put it on a gun and you hand it to somebody with zero experience, they're going to be able to hit the target. The reason is because 
It's a simple concept using eye-hand coordination of overlaying something with their eyes and then squeezing something with their hands. And so it's natural for us. It's very primitive. So one, I always recommend people who are getting into it to do that. I have built a lot of behavioral script and habit off of iron sights, um, which has made it more difficult for me to attain one, the sight picture and sight box of the RMR or whatever the red dot optic option is um, and, and acquisition. So I have to practice the visual acuity that it takes to see what I see. With that being said, it truly depends. I mean, there's there's a few variables there. Um, one, the average gunfight takes place within about 13 feet. It's 12 point something. It's And that's an old FBI statistic. I think it was 2003 to 2013 based on uh, shootings that police officers were in. But you could take that and, and look at 12 feet or 10 feet and realize that the deviation between 10 and 25 is, is inches, right? Yeah. So if, if you set yourself up for success, um, it's somewhere in between. I would do, honestly, a 10-yard zero or the, the highest statistical probability of getting in a gunfight, which is about 12 feet, zero it there, and it will cover you down for 25 feet. Now, maybe you'll have a minimal hold, but again, you are looking at a red dot that has a 3.5-inch MOA. So if that's the case at 25 yards, you're looking at a quarter of whatever that is. Um, there's going to be minor deviations. It's going to get you ballpark. Uh, ballpark for me is within the A zone. So as long as you're in that A box and you understand that hold based on dif- distance, you'll be set up for success. And I think a lot of it comes down also is, especially for someone who's just kind of getting into it, you know, if you're talking about self-defense, you don't have to get that dime, you know, grouping. It's a silhouette. You know, the A zone, whatever we call it in IDP, you know, the zero down zone, the A zone, and I, you know, but if you're hitting a silhouette from, you know, 25 feet, then yes, you can work on being very, very precise. But ultimately, if, if, it, if you're worried about that combat shoot, that shoot is the fan, that self-defense shoot, and you can put an entire mag consistently right here, you're good. It's going to end that threat. That, that's the whole thing. So I, I, I find it funny. A lot of people that are just trying to be precision pistol shooters, and I'm like, unless you're doing competition, bro, it's it's get the shit out and, and point and shoot. I don't I mean half the time, honest God, I don't know about you. I don't even aim half the time. It's point and shoot. I know that my muscle memory and my mechanics are good, that I can go right here and not even to focus on that front sight, and I'm going to end that threat. I'm going to put it down there. Um, you know, and Clover and I were talking about that a couple weeks ago about point and shooting how many people say that's bad well in a, in a shit it's the fan scenario you should be able if you've done your work and you done your practice you should be able to draw present pull that trigger and without even having to focus on that front sight and get that a zone get that silhouette in that threat are you cross-eyed dominant and do you practice non-dominant hand yes i am cross-eyed dominant i'm right-handed and left eye dominant Same and- I, that, this is one of the most often asked questions when I talk about this. And a lot of people don't understand, one, that dominance has nothing to do with uh, acuity, meaning the the scale in which your eye is measured, meaning your dominant eye doesn't have to be your best eye. In fact, my left eye is 20-40. My right eye is 20-20. So I have a stigmatism in my left eye, but it happens to be my dominant eye. And with pistol, since you shoot isosceles, it doesn't have a big... Determine, determining factor of your accuracy or speed. If you just take simply take the pistol and rotate it over that eye and push the pistol over that eye, 
you'll be set up. The mistake you'd be making is if you push it over your right eye and then tilt your head to look down your front sights. Uh, like you said, one, I love the discussion about finding your front sights in a self-defense scenario. The answer is you'll never be able to find your front sights in a, in a circumstance in which you pull your gun in defense of your life, especially against an immediate threat. I know this because I've killed people in combat, and I know under my own pretenses and being trained, thoroughly trained, and then reacting to an immediate threat, which is a person who has a barrel of a gun pointed at you, you have no time. The reaction time of a human being is about two-tenths of a second. Most people don't realize that the reaction time or the action time of you transitioning your field of view from target to front sight, which is from far to near, is three-tenths of a second. At best case scenario, it was actually a case study conducted by um, um, scientists who were looking at performance athletes and their ability to transfer their focus from far to near. Three-tenths. That's the best genetically enhanced human beings on the planet. So you take age, you take all these uh, individual factors, and the reality is when you pull your gun to save your life, you'll never find the front sights. And in the duration, look, I don't teach people to just point shoot targets. I teach people that they have to be prepared for the immediate action or threat and addressing an immediate action or threat by understanding they won't find the front sight, but they can evolve their eyes to the gunfight. So if it's three-tenths of a second, that's about three rounds in the gunfight. So right. to not transfer their eyes from target, which... By the way, the reason you're identifying a threat in the first place is because you have target focus, right? So <laughs> right. you can't identify the world around you if you're focused on your front sight in the first place. If you think that there's blurry. <laughs> yeah, blurry, right? Because it's not, things aren't staged in gauntlets of steel and paper. We, have, we live in a world in which we identify, because we're sight hunters, we identify threats, and then we, and then we reduce that threat by um, driving that gun and then driving point alignment. I, I interviewed Dan Horner, who's the world's best shooter. There's no argument. Dan Horner taught me when he was uh, a member of AMU. I actually had my special forces team to his place to do pistol, carbine, and rifle. And and last year, he won every competition he shot as a USPSA world champion, as an NRA world champion, going against the best shooters in the world. And I asked him, I said, Dan, out of all the targets you shot in paper and steel, out of every comp that you won, which you won every one, how many times did you transition your field of view, meaning from target focus to front sight focus? And he said once. And I really? said, when that circumstance, 27 yards, he had a six-inch pie plate, and he transitioned his field of view, which inherently that's important. And then I asked him probably the most important tactical training tip I could give you, how do you become better at that, and what would you do if you had to train up for a competition? He said, I would sit out an IPSC target, which is the size of a man, at 20 yards. I would set a table. And I would stack a thousand rounds and then I would put my gun away in a holster and I would drive my holster or from my holster, uh, drive my gun and shoot five round strings as fast as I could and as accurately as I could on that target without using my front sight. Meaning target picture. Look, it's called alignment. It's not called point right. shooting the way we teach it because you see in the background of your vision, your front and rear sight. And if you do that enough, you understand the relationship between the target, your eyes, and the gun, and where that gun is. And so when I shoot a, a, a string of fire, I make our students shoot a string of fire and teach them a tactic, and they drive the gun as fast as they can. And at the end of it, I say, how many of you use your front sights? The answer is zero. And then the, the, the solution I give is because you want to live. If you want to live, you won't even think about transitioning your, your sights, which is counterintuitive to what I know. I was trying to <laughs> 
spray <laughs> to drive from my holster in a, in a three-step process, one, two, and rail the gun and find my front sights in the rail. But that's yep. inefficient and that's slow and you don't have any time. You know, two-tenths of a second is no time at all. Exactly. Um, let's see here. We got another question out there. Going back to dots a little bit. Uh, do you like a larger dot? Both of his dots are two MOA, but do you like a larger since it's easier to pick up, or do you want do you like smaller dots in general? Yeah, I like, I'm assuming we're talking carbines at this point. Yeah, for carbines, I like a smaller dot. Um, and even if I have a, a 3.5 MOA dot, I'm dialing it down to right. the point in which my eye can see it, but Barely, yeah. interrupting my field of view. Now, remember. The benefit that people don't realize, which is the whole concept behind what we're talking about in point shooting, the benefit for a red dot is you're not focused on a red dot. Your eyeball doesn't look at the red. You shouldn't be looking at a red dot and getting a refined dot picture with your eye, right? The benefit behind a red dot is your eyeball recognizes in the background of your vision what that is. And so it overlays the dot on target focus, which makes the shot sequence or process faster. So... The size of the dot doesn't need to be big and doesn't need to be bright because it will interrupt your target field of view. I'm focused on a threat. I drive the red dot. It's in the background of my vision, but I know it's overlaid and I break the shot. So smaller and and more refined is critical in accuracy, but also in not interrupting that acuity process between target and then red dot focus. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Clover, you got anything you want to ask or anything right now? Yeah, I was trying to get through some of the uh, pistol questions out there because I kind of want to back up and catch something else. We were in the uh, side chat over there, and it was a conversation, uh, you know, Mill Radiant MOA. And, and, Mike, you said earlier that you prefer Mill Radiant, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Now, MOA, there's a lot of people out there that would disagree. I don't. I fall into the Mill Radiant camp as well. Um, is there – do you have a reason yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this is a that's a really good technical question. Here's what people most people don't understand. Well, let me give context. One, I, I was a special forces sniper. Not only was I a sniper in special operations that was sniper qualified, but my job was actually a sniper, which is rare in a special operations period. Because you can go to sniper school, you can go to SODIC, which is special operations target interdiction course, um, but you could not be a sniper or rated sniper. To be a rated sniper, you have to be a member of the commanders and extremist force, and you have to be slotted in that position. And so not only was I a sniper, I was a sniper team sergeant. And then, you know, I shot the USASOC sniper comp, which included the best snipers in the world, and was very tied into the sniper community. My One of the guys that just hired ran our sniper school, uh, which teaches CAG snipers, Ranger snipers, and SF snipers. And so this information is not coming from a point of, emotion right because some a lot of people who talk about guns do so because they have a legacy uh technical means of doing things they 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 know moas they're comfortable with moa so they they defer to moa and say everything mill radian is is doesn't matter here's the problem moa is minute of angle which is an angular unit of measure which gets larger and broader with distance away from the barrel you know this is external ballistics based off of the trajectory of the round the inherent problem with moa is beyond 500 yards you start to lose the math so if you look at an moa reticle right the bdc drops at moa so if i take an moa reticle for example on a, a uh, 
a Leupold Mark III Alpha, which is what I used early on as a sniper, on a Remington 700 chassis platform known as the M24. If I take that and I go to dial out for 700 yards, which is when, when around the 308 round is becoming transonic, it's about to lo- it's it's about to become unstable or unpredictable. So if I go to dial at 700 yards, you would think based off of normal logic that I would dial down or, or dial up in this case seven minutes of angle, but that's not how it works. So it doesn't correlate to distance. Most people think it does. Most people, even in special operations, used to think, oh, you dial seven minutes. And that equals to 700 meters. Well, that's not even close to the truth. You'll be at, you know, I don't know the math off the top of my head, but it's like seven plus 13 is the calculus. Well, the reason we got away from one MOA is because in between uh, minutes of angle, how you measure it in your reticle, you have quarter MOA adjustments, right? Which is which is are ways in which you hold over. The problem there is. When you get beyond 500 yards, you don't have the enough stage reticles or enough MOA built into the gun, right? We, we often call, uh, refer to this as MOA that will seek into the rail or MO, uh, MOA will seek into the reticle. So when we look at long distance, like 308 is capable of engaging targets at 1,000 yards. Yes, it's, it's the hit probability uh, degrades. Uh, the hit probability for 6.5 Creedmoor, for example, is double the hit probability uh, for 308 at 1,000 meters. It's been tested by SOCOM. Brian Litz, the big brain on ballistics, has tested it. So when I'm looking at further distance shots, I need a reticle that has more minutiae. Mill Radiance has that because the unit of measure is 0.2, meaning I have a stage line every 0.2 mils, when otherwise I would have had one every quarter of an MOA. So... When I start to shoot at long distance ranges, I have the ability to reference a reticle staged line, right? Which means I have something tangible to look at to hold over, as opposed to an MOA where I have to dial it. Well, most people who don't understand this don't realize that in rapid engagement scenarios, which most snipers will um, be trained for, you don't have the ability to dial your, your elevation nor your windage. Ten years, hell, five years ago, the Marines and the Navy were dialing windage still, which is an environmental factor that consistently changes. So we picked up mill radiant reticles where we could adjust on the fly. So now if I have a guy at 700 yards running towards me, I don't have to dial in MOA because I don't have the ability to reference it. I can hold the mill radian, shoot him, and then compensate the distance because he just advanced 100 yards in that time of flight and that in that time it, it took me to chamber another round. So or pick up the next target immediately afterwards. Exactly, exactly. Because yeah. I don't have time to adjust for wind, and I don't have time to adjust for things that are happening rad- radically on the battlefield. You know, if I send us if I send a 308 round at a thousand yards and it has uh, a 50 percent hit uh, hit ratio less than a 6.5 Creedmoor, I'm going to miss. And so what, the, the question is, what do I do when I miss? Not, not how do I compensate right. for the wind at 1,000 yards because I'm more likely going to miss. The, the, the solution is now I have a mill radian line to reference where I could read the miss in, in a staged line and then reference that to, to adjust for that. And, and a lot of people don't realize that MOAs, um, one, it's an old unit of measure. 
Two, mill radian is used in FDC in firing mortars and field artillery and all kinds of weapon systems. And it's also the most refined unit of measure in understanding uh, lat long and the environment around us. It, it is what we should be paying attention, attention to. Uh, and MOA is old technology. Absolutely. We got uh, we got one out here from Guitar Man Pieces. I got to know what's the deal with all the Special Forces guys and their tattoos. So, um, you I, bring I, that up? I got a theory. So, here's my theory. My theory is the military is what affects popular culture every time we go to war and, and since the beginning of time. World War II soldiers, sailors, Marines, and aviators were coming back. You know what they were doing? They were getting Sailor Jerry tattoos. They were cutting P-52s into hot rods. They were taking motorcycles and putting apes on them and chopping them. And then what did that translate to? It translated to popular culture and people doing that. So when somebody asked me, hey, Mike, why do you have all those? Why does every SF guy have tattoo? I would say, why does every civilian have tattoos? You know why? More than likely is because somewhere along the way in the GWAT in Vietnam, we affected the culture. And so military guys coming out of the military, we, we've done that because it's part of our culture. But now you see a dude with a beard with tattoos who's a hipster and, and, and he thinks he's a special operations guy. Um, then, then the question should be, well, why do you have tattoos when you've when never done anything in your life? And you're doing it for the aesthetic. So that's just, that's just my idea on it. But not every guy has tattoos. In fact, no. a big mistake I made in special operations that debilitated my ability to do a lot of low-vis operations was I had too many tattoos. Um, yep. Guys who have tattoos on their hands, their neck, I have no problem with that. But again, you want to mitigate your capability and abilities to uh, do some cool stuff, get a lot of tattoos. Yep. I, I remember when I got out of uh, one of my schools, went to boot camp, went to combat, and then went to some schooling for our MOSs. And uh, when I got out of my first school, it was like the rite of passage. Like the older guy, they just took you to the tattoo parlor and said, pick one. And it has to be, you know, an, uh, Eagle Globe and Anchor or the Bulldog or Semper Fi. It's, it's got to be in, in the guys down, you know, the tattoo guys, all they do is tattoo Marines at the time, so they know exactly what's going to happen. But it was kind of like a rite of passage. Like, you're not involved and you're not included in the in the club until you go get inked with something that says Marines on there. And so that was just kind of one of those things where I didn't know anyone that didn't. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm sure there were, but if they didn't, I didn't know it. I just assumed that everyone had some kind of ink on them. Um, a lot of people did it for uh, – not just the military side, they did it for religious or they did it. Um, we had a, some, our, our, one of our guys was named Momo Wong Willie Samoan. And um, Wong Willie was 6'1", 225 and was literally the runt of the family. And he had Samoan tats that were symbolic to his culture and all of that. So, you know, it's just one of those things I think that more, more importantly, I think that even long before tattoos were accepted in society, like you said, back into World War II, and Clover was going to bring up something, and I'll let him bring up here in a second. It's been going on way before that, you know. It was just, but it wasn't accepted into normal everyday society, and now it is, and it's it's one of those things. But Clover, you you were making a point in the side chat. You want to bring that up as well? 
Yeah, I mean, as far as military goes, and, you know, I'm just going to use, you know, not necessarily tattoos, but bodily markings. I mean, you go back to ancient times, you know, whether it's Egyptians or, you know, Native Americans or, you know, the Mayans or whatever it would be. I mean, they were they were tatted up or marked up, you know, a lot of their warriors and stuff. It was just, it was just, the, I guess, the, uh, the culture. It was war time, paint. Maybe. It was war paint. Yeah, war paint. Was, yeah absolutely. Know? Yeah, yeah. Do you prefer in long range? You prefer fifty BMG four sixteen or the three three eight Lapua? So you know the it's a good question. I will tell you that the fifty BMG was and never considered an anti personnel round. It's been used that way, but it's a, it's essentially an indirect firing capability, uh, meaning you can't be grossly accurate with that because the range and tolerances that you'll see you you want to shoot a bad guy at 2000 yards good luck with that with a bmg on a yeah. on an m2 or a fit uh, 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 any type of platform uh i think that 338 lapua or 300 norma even 300 wind mag are our appropriate measures for long range shooting i mean uh the 338 lapua i've used um 300 women mag i've used 300 normas coming um yeah so as long as it has ex great external ballistics and you know you could tie that into terminal ballistics with the proper round and it's accurate i'm all about either of those and obviously having an optic to be able to pid and to manage what you you're shooting at that far range but I, i'm all about um either one of those all right, so we're this is we got about five minutes, four minutes left. This is kind of where we go with like to rapid fire, have some fun questions if you don't mind. So let's go with this uh, first gun that you actually bought yourself. Uh, first gun I ever bought was when I was twelve years. Oh, but, oh I owned that when I was twelve years. <laughs> SKS. But let's go. Uh, the first gun I ever owned was a Glock seventeen. Okay. Um, if you, barring NFA, nothing, no restrictions, barring no money and all that, what is your dream gun? Like, and what's the one gun you could have? An STG 44 uh, okay. or a PSH 41, two iconic war guns. Right on. Um, trying to think. What are some of the other questions we always ask, Clover? Um, okay, let's go with this. Um, for long range, what's your favorite long range rifle platform to shoot? Do you have uh, one? Six five three more, and then that could be in a JP, that could be in a Barrett, um, that could be in, in a Larue. My 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 gas gun, my Larue Tactical OBR uh, Predator is my favorite gas gun, and that I want to get that chambered in six five. It's chambered in three oh eight, um, but that's my favorite gun. Um, what would you consider a minimal set of firearms for basic preparedness, knowing that with time it could grow, but your basic, is there a two or three gun set that you say you got to have this for basic preparedness? I'm, I'm very specific about this. I would say Glock 17, nine mil full size, a Glock 19 for everyday carry. Um, for, for your truck gun, I would look at a 10 inch Triarch systems, um, a, a 10.3 BCM. Um, if I'm extending my range, I'm, I, I, I'm partial to the 11.5 because an 11.5 is being filled, has been filled by SOCOM and they found the same tolerances that you would seek in a 14.5. So you just save a few inches. 
Um, so I'd, I'd go with an 11.5 BCM with a 1-6 to six or 1-8 to eight Night Force or Vortex. Nice. Um, now, Jamie out there, he's a Marine. He was a, a Force guy. I was with Strig. Uh, he wants to know what you think about Force guys. <laughs> yeah, I actually like I'm a big fan of the Marine Corps. September 18th, I'm speaking at the Marine Corps Force Recon Basic Recon School graduation. Nice. I grew up in the military, uh, whether it was downrange or just operating with Marines all over the world. So I have a special place in my heart for Marines ever since I saw uh, uh, a couple Clint Eastwood Marine Corps style movies. I understand. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um... All right, so this is one that's out there. Is a hot dog a sandwich? A hot dog's a hot dog. A sandwich and two pieces of bread. If you got a bun, it's a different circumstance, different nomenclature. That's right. What about uh, Slim Jims? Are they candy? No, never. Slim Jim. <laughs> right. So we've got we've got a chef out there, and he's he's he loves these things. He's he's fascinated <laughs> with hot dogs being sandwiches and Slim Jims being candy because they're in the candy aisle. So. You know. <laughs> All right, so once again, guys, thanks for watching. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. I want to give you a few minutes if you want to plug. I'll be throwing out your links to YouTube, Instagram, and all that. Uh, tell people about maybe some of the projects you're working on, where you where they can find you, and anything that you want to plug right now. Yeah, we do training. We do equipment. We do pretty much everything you could, you could think of under the survival genre. You guys – you know, you're listening to this, so you're more you're you're probably interested in video content. We have a YouTube channel called the Philcraft Survival Channel. We also do audio podcast. Uh, we have the Philcraft Survival Podcast tomorrow. I have the dog handler and the dog Cairo that was on the Bin Laden raid coming to my studio. Oh, um, that's going to be a good one. Um, I also have the Mike Force Podcast, which is my personal podcast, and we do have a mindset podcast called Modern Mindset Three Six Five or MM Three Six Five. You know, I, I just recommend everybody go to philcrosssurvival.com. Uh, I got a social media handle. It's mike.a.glover. If you're interested in anything that we're doing, most of it gets found on philcrosssurvival.com. Um, but we're training all over the U.S. We think it's super important. We're doing survival. We're doing med. We're doing tactics. Um, and, and we're all about supporting uh, law enforcement in, in our community. So uh, I just appreciate having me on. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to being on next time. And, and uh, thank you. Yeah, man, it was awesome having you on. And like I said, if you guys haven't checked out Mike or any of the, the channels, go check it out. Um, and it was wonderful. And like I said, thanks for coming on. I, I love the way that you speak your mind and your uh, you hold everything that you have to you is you. And there's there's no fake about it. So I love that. Thank you for uh, everything that you're doing out there. If you guys if you want to go out there and check them out, I'll put the links out there. Uh, Fieldcraftsurvival.com. You've got YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Uh, go check them out if you want training. He does training. He's got gear. Everything is there. Great podcast. There's multiple podcasts that he's involved with. They're all good listens. So go go check them out. They're all on their channel and all that, but it's wonderful. Big shout out to our title sponsor, Hyperion Munitions. Go check out Veteran Ammo. Go check out Garrisar. Go check out Ariskany Arms. Great, great companies. All of them are under the umbrella over at Hyperion Munitions. Go check out HyperionMunitions.com. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you soon. Real quick, this is my PSA of the night. No crayons were injured during the recording of this podcast. We'll see you soon. Simplify.
Well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To check out all of the episodes of the Jarhead Podcast, plus all of our other podcasts that we're involved in, and all of our social media platforms, go check out our website, ghosttactical.us. Once again, thank you so much for watching. We appreciate your time and always your support. We'll see you soon. Simplify.